invite you this morning to open the Word of God to the book of Isaiah as we're continuing um, our journey through this great book. Open, go ahead and open up to Isaiah 43. We're going to read just a, a small portion of this section. Chapter 43, going to be looking at verses 1 to 13 of Isaiah chapter 43. Um, as we turn to the word of the Lord, I invite you to stand out of reference, reverence for its reading. If you're able this morning, Isaiah 43, we will read verse 1 to 13. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, the word of God says this. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, from the west, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. <clears throat> there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. <clears throat> Father, as we open your word now, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear from you? Father, would you take your word and the truth of your word, open our hearts to receive it, to receive Christ, 
to continue to walk in faithfulness to our Lord and our Savior, to see you, Father, for who you are. Lord, would you help us to be changed as we are exposed to your greatness and your majesty this morning. It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. We may be seated. (coughs) This morning we come to chapters 40 to 55 in our continued overview study of the book of Isaiah. The tone and message of these chapters, as maybe you've already heard in reading a section from chapter 43, is so drastically different from chapters 1 to 39. In fact, I invite you, and we're going to be looking uh, at a lot of scripture this morning in this passage. So if you have your Bibles or uh, whatever on your screen, just open those up. We're going to be looking at that and flipping around uh, some this morning. So go ahead and open to Isaiah 39. And I want to just uh, see the contrast that we see here in this great book right off the beginning. Just a few steps back into chapter 39 Verse number five, look at um, how this contrast comes to it. Chapter 39, verse five says this. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah, uh, then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. We must remember in the book of Isaiah that this book was written without chapter and verse uh, divisions, came many hundreds of years afterwards. So to the people as they're hearing the word of God and some of the oldest scrolls of the book of Isaiah, there's simply just a little bit of a space in between these chapters and these book to be read aloud to the people, the whiplash that they would have coming off verse chapter 39 into chapter 40 would have been severe. Babylon will come and destroy you. It's going to destroy all of Judah. Your sons will be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And everything you have is going to be taken to Babylon. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And so Isaiah enters into this section where indeed... Speaking comfort is exactly what he does for 15 beautiful chapters. These chapters are so rich and filled with truth about God's character, God's promises that he has made, pointing to the Redeemer that was to come, the Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But before jumping into these chapters, we need to say, a quick word about who Isaiah was writing to and when. So let's just think in our minds who he's writing to and when he was writing. So Isaiah, we could say, is speaking to the exiles of the future before they were even exiles. 
He is writing, we could say, to a situation that's going to happen some 200 years before the things that he spoke and wrote, okay? So he's writing these things in this day, Assyria is the world power, and he is writing to a time when Babylon will rise to power, take God's people into exile, into Babylon, and he is writing to those exiles, telling them to be comforted because of the work of the Lord. And he's gonna go on even to speak more about that amazingly, which is not so amazing because God is God. He's gonna speak to the exiles that are gonna return underneath the Persian king that is going to sack the Babylonians and bring them back to Israel. So hopefully you're not confused right off the bat. All that we're saying is here in these chapters, Isaiah is writing to the future generations after him of people that are going to be in exile and brought back to the promised land. And so this kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Did what Isaiah was writing about in this future exile, did it have any meaning for his eighth century audience? For those living in the 700s, the early 700s BC, did it have any meaning for them? Because he's speaking about what's going to happen in the future. And of course, the answer is a resounding yes. Two things here that we could say about it. His message was to establish trust in the sovereignty and the plan of God. Because the people were not going into exile because God was not able to save. It's, it's not as though the Babylonians are going to rise because the gods of the Babylonians are stronger than the gods of the Israelites. It's because of their repeated sin, their repeated rebellion that God was going to take them into exile. And so they needed to hear this fact. Secondly, they needed to rest assured that God is going to carry out his promises. After a period of judgment, God would bring about redemption. God would bring about restoration. God was going to carry on the promises to bring about his savior and they needed to know this fact. And we also need to be reminded of these same two truths. No matter, and this is true of God's people in each generation, no matter what we are facing, no matter what is taking place in the world, God is in control and God will carry out his promises. We can trust in him. That was the theme from last week. We can trust in God. God can be trusted. He is at work. And it's in this tone that Isaiah sets in chapter 40, which is really the introductory chapter to this section of chapters 40 to 55 in this amazing book. So look at the first few verses of Isaiah 40, verses one to two. Look at what he says, just to repeat that. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The word comfort here is doubled for emphasis. God is reminding his people of his tenderness, of his kindness towards them. At this time, God's people have rejected him. 
God's people were not trusting in his promises. They were not listening to his prophets. But God anyway is speaking to them saying, I am going to remain faithful to keep my promises. I am going to continue my work and I am speaking comfort even to a disobedient people. What an amazing God that we worship. How kind, how compassionate is our God. Look at verses three to five as it continues. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah again is speaking about the coming work of God and about what God will do, how the glory of the Lord will be revealed, how God is going to show his glory. Valleys and mountains were hard to travel in. They are difficult, but Isaiah speaks about an ease of travel in these verses. Valleys lifted up, mountains made low. It's a picture of a flatland that's easy to travel. It's just a poetic way of saying it, that God is going to make these things easy. He's going to bring it about. And these verses should sound familiar to us, don't they? Verse number three in particular, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all quote this verse in speaking about the work of John the Baptist to come and prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus is ultimately the one here being spoken of that is going to come and level all things and be the one to come and show the glory of God to the world. And Isaiah emphasizes how God is going to bring this about. He contrasts God's faithfulness to make it happen with, we could say, man's faithfulness, or as the text says, beauty. Look at verse number six quickly. It says, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty, that is, don't, don't think prettiness, but think like faithfulness, good attributes of, the faithfulness of grass, all its faithfulness is like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the wind blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. People rise People fall, people are disobedient, but he's saying, look, things are going to happen because God is the one who said they're going to happen. God is in control and he is different than man. God's word and flesh, we're like grass, we spring up and then we die. But God's word, consider it this morning, we're still sitting here reading it. This is the word of God from thousands of years ago. God's word stands forever. And so Isaiah is just setting the tone for these chapters here in this opening of, of comfort, of surety, of faithfulness, of God's faithfulness, that he can be trusted, that God is at work, that he's going to be moving to bring about his plans. 
So those of you that have read these chapters, chapter 40 to chapter 55, they are just jam-packed with such beautiful truths about God. Such amazing promises of what God would do and how amazing he is. So much could be said. But in the rest of our time together, I want us to see at least four major themes that emerge and are repeated in this promise pack section of Isaiah. There is a ton, and my apologies for those of you with favorite verses in these chapters, we can't hit them all, which maybe you might be glad that we're not trying to, but we're going to hit the main themes here. That's what we're doing uh, in this overview study, these main themes. And so again, Isaiah is writing to a disobedient people about what God is going to do in the future after they're long gone and why he is greater than other gods, why he's able to do the things that he's going to do. And so these verses are just stating why this is the case and there's just such amazing truths that we find about God in this passage. So first thing that we see emerge all over these chapters is God's presence with his people. God's presence with his people. First major theme that emerges. It's been clear in our study through the book of Isaiah that the people have rebelled against the God who created them. They've not trusted in his promises. We've seen that. They had not sought to live in obedience to God's commands. They were committing injustices after injustice with one another. They were relying on other nations to fight for them instead of trusting the almighty God of the universe to take care of them. There were glimmers of hope, especially with King Hezekiah. Uh, chapter uh, uh, 38, chapter 36, 37. These are just some uh, amazing verses where the Rabshakeh comes and is taunting the people of God and they're trusting in God and this great call for who you're going to trust in. But at chapter 39, we see uh, here that at the end of King Hezekiah's life, although he trusted in the Lord, at the end, he's seeking an alliance with Babylon to save them from Assyria, and God promised judgment. He said, I'm going to bring about judgment. And indeed, God brought judgment. God brought exile in 586 BC. A while after this was written, Babylon sacked Jerusalem, leveled the temple. God's people found themselves in exile, but God wanted them to know that he was still with them and that he would be with them, that he would be with them in the future, that he can be trusted and that God keeps his promises and he is with his people to see them through the struggles and the things that they face. You, I'm gonna flip through some passages. You can just listen along as I read or if you wanna try uh, to keep up, that's fine as well. Just listen to some of these verses of God's, presence and comfort with his people. Chapter 41, verse eight to 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. 
I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13 of that same chapter. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 43, verse one to three a. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Chapter 45, verses one to three, it says there, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, again, we're speaking way in the future now, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings and to open the doors before him, the gates that may not be closed, I will go before you I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by name, that you may know that it is me, he is saying. Chapter 51, verse number 12 says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? We could go on and on and on. These are just a smattering of these verses where Isaiah shows us the presence of God with his people. God wanted his covenant people to know that they will be able to make it through the difficult times that they are facing and that they will face because God is with them. God's presence and sustaining grace make all the difference in the world. God's presence and sustaining grace is what sees us through this life. God's presence and sustaining grace is what keeps us. It's what perseveres us to the end. And this is a truth that we must continue to realize today. God in his word does not promise a journey on this earth without sin, without sorrow, without sadness. God's word does not promise us that, but God does promise to be with us. He promises to be with us and to see us through he promises to be with us and to walk the path he's called us to walk, not alone, not on our own strength, but he calls us to go down that path with his presence with us. Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 28, he says there, have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint 
And to him who has no might, he increases strength. He's just saying God strengthens his people in our weakness. God makes us strong. And then we come to verse 30 to 31 that you will know. Even youth, youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. That, that is the best that we have to offer, right? Is not, not you, a picture of strength and you think 60. No, you think of youth, right? The best we got, youths, young men, even the strongest, we grow weary, we fall exhausted. But verse 31 states the beautiful truth, but they who wait for the Lord They who wait for him shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What does it look like to wait on the Lord? Well, to wait on him means to completely depend upon him to act. To completely depend upon him to act. This is true for salvation of coming into the Christian life. You're completely dependent on, upon God and his work through Jesus Christ to save you. And for our daily living, we are completely dependent upon God daily to rely on him to save, to pray to him for daily strength, to submit ourselves to his instruction, to submit ourselves to his means of grace for us, his word to teach us, to completely depend upon him, to not depend upon our own understanding, but to completely depend upon God, which looks so different than what we see with our own eyes. To wait on him means to completely accept his timetable. Waiting is a very hard thing, isn't it, to wait? I think waiting is hard for us because when we have to wait for something, we really realize that we're not in control. We're not able to make it happen. We're not able to do what we want. We're not able to bring about the result we want to see happen and we have to wait. When you wait, you show dependence upon God to act for you. Brothers and sisters, we need to apply this truth to the things that we are currently facing as we are God's people, even in the new covenant of how God speaks to us with his presence, knowing that he is with us and he will see us through this fallen life that we are living in. The struggles that you have, the difficulties that you face, and all of us walk these different paths with things at home, with things with work, with things that you struggle with, with the things of this life, the things you want to happen that don't happen, the things that do happen you wish didn't happen and the things you find yourself in, God's word comes and speaks to us and tells us to rely on the Lord in them, to trust in him to be at work in the daily things of our lives. Trust in his provision for you. Realize that God is with you and will see you through. Be reminded of that amazing truth this morning, his presence with us through the Holy Spirit, that God is with us, that he never leaves us, he will never forsake us. God will see us through to the end. God's presence makes all the difference in the world with the people of God. And just as Isaiah was writing to the people of that time in the future, And now we're looking back upon it. The same truth is still there. God is with his people. 
God sees his people through the things that he calls them to face. Just think about all the troubles they were going to face. They, they were going into exile. And mind you, most of them probably just disregarded this word that Isaiah said. Isaiah said, they say they didn't believe him before. They're not gonna believe him now. But there was a remnant there who would hear these words that Isaiah would state and they would be comforted by it. Knowing that God was going to bring about his promises, he was going to work through his people. We need to realize that same truth today as we live in a fallen world. God is at work. We're not exempt from suffering, but praise the Lord, he will see us through. He is with us. His presence is with us. Another major theme we see in these chapters is God's salvation to the nations. Point number two, God's salvation to the nations. The book of Isaiah has earned the title, the gospel according to Isaiah or uh, the fifth gospel. Uh, because of all the references uh, to the God's coming work in bringing about the Savior. Uh, fulfillment passages of John the Baptist or come from the book of Isaiah. Fulfillment passages of Jesus. What his ministry would look like. What his ministry would be like. How Jesus would be characterized and the substitutional sacrifice that Jesus was going to make on the cross. More on that later. But what also stands out is Isaiah's teaching that God's salvation is not just meant for Israel, it's meant for the whole world. The promised Savior that Isaiah spoke about was a global Savior. Turn with me to Isaiah 49, just one verse there, or just listen. 49 verse 6, Isaiah says this, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as the light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah is saying, it is too small a task for the coming savior to only redeem the tribes of Jacob or ethnic Israel. This work is much larger than that. The savior will be a light for the nations. As the text says that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the spectrum is global. As the New Testament says, to all nations, to all peoples, God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would use the descendants of Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. And that plan was marching on. God's salvation was promised to be for all peoples. The coming savior is for all nations. The same theme is found, just uh, one more passage that speaks of this. Chapter 42, verse six and seven says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Much like the song that we uh, just sang, and can it be of uh, God's quickening ray coming into the dungeon and us springing forth with life. That is what is being spoken of here in this passage that God's uh, uh, salvation is going to go and free the prisoners, poetically of speaking about those who are in their sin, that he would be a light for the nations, the savior of the world. 
And Isaiah points to this truth all throughout this section. God's plan was to bring forth the savior of the universe through a people he formed, the Jewish nation, and God always keeps that promise. The savior of the world, Isaiah is showing us, has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw it from afar. He prophesied about it to the people of his day and ultimately to the future exiles, that they would know the savior of the world would come through them. The light of the nations was coming. God was using them to bring forth this light that would set the prisoners free. That global task of Christ continues on even today as Christ came in fulfillment that we've seen obviously and know through the New Testament, through the early church, and now the great commission of taking the gospel to all peoples, all nations and places. The gospel is to go forth all over the globe. The gospel we believe is not regional that we're gonna see in a minute, it's global. And praise God this morning that the gospel message has come to us. Praise God this morning that, that we are here and able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm afraid sometimes we don't really understand how blessed our ears are already this morning that we've heard of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross to forgive our sins. As what John in his prayer as he spoke and just so showing us how we can come to Christ, how we can receive forgiveness, our ears are blessed to receive this news, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's only by God's grace. Many times we get real comfortable with that because we've heard it so many times and praise God, we've heard it so many times but we need to be reminded of the fact this is the grace of God and it's our task to receive that message and to take that message to the world. That's our task as believers. God has tasked the church with that to be a gospel-centered outpost for the kingdom of God, to be protecting the gospel against the things of this world that seek to undermine it, to change it, to de-emphasize it, to subvert it. No, to keep the gospel the main thing, to proclaim salvation to the lost and to take that message to a lost and dying world. Not only locally, but globally. Whose task is it? The task is yours and ours. It's the kingdom of God. It's the task of the local church. This task has not been given to a government organization. Praise the Lord, he's wiser than that. He gives it to the people of God to take the word of God all across the globe. So we need to be reminded of that fact. We do that by going. We do that through sending missionaries. We do that with our wallets to fund people to go. But we always need to have our eyes open to that fact. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And his people all over the world need to have it in their mind to take that gospel message everywhere. This truth leads right into the third major theme, I would say, of this passage, and that is God's sovereignty over idols. God's sovereignty over idols. This is probably the most prominent theme if you just sat down and read through these chapters. These chapters are jam-packed with what we could call big God theology. Isaiah shows how God is incomparable. He's unrivaled. He's unparalleled. He's unmatched. When you compare God to any of the idols of the nations, 
there is simply no comparison. God is God over all. He's not some mere local deity, the God over Jerusalem. That was their understanding at this time period in the Old Testament. You had local deities of different nationalities. So the God of this God against the God. So when you went to war, it wasn't just who's the strongest, it's whose God is the strongest. And Isaiah is showing here that the God of Jerusalem is not just the God of the Holy Land. He is the God of all peoples and nations. So Isaiah is going to show that God is the one true God. And how would he do that? What things would he say about God to prove to the people of God that God is over all? That he is the one true and living God, not just of this area, but of all the world. What might Isaiah say to prove that fact to them? Well, we could summarize and Isaiah is going to put his hand on God's providence and God's sovereignty. So what he's going to do is he's going to say, listen, here is who God is. And he paints a beautiful, amazing picture of God. And to state it simply, God is able to tell the future. Isaiah shows in these passages. God knows the future. He tells the future. He brings about the future. And God does whatever he chooses. And no idol can do such things. So Isaiah does these amazing verses. Look, look together, uh, Isaiah 41, 21. Just listen to what Isaiah says here in these few verses. Isaiah, in speaking about the futility of idols, says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them, that is the idols, and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Right? So he's telling of them, tell us the future. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed, that we may be terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. I don't, you're, you're nothing, you're less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Verse 29, behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. We didn't read verse 25 and following there, but he talks about Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king who would come and sack Babylon who has yet to rise to power. Okay, just follow that for a minute. Assyrian rule. Here comes Babylon that's going to sack Assyria. Hasn't happened yet. He's talking about it. And then he's talking about the king that's going to come, the Medo-Persian king and rise above Babylon. <laughs> right? In fact, this is, this is pretty funny actually. Some people, liberal scholars, an oxymoron, but some people think as they come to these verses that Isaiah did not write these verses. It was some other person that wrote these verses hundreds of years ago because Isaiah could not write this uh, about the future with such precision knowing what is going to happen, which is actually quite comical because that's the point Isaiah is making. God is God because he can tell the future, right? And then some people come and they say, well, this, this is not written here. This is written hundreds of years later because, you know, I, I, the Bible can't predict the future, which if you're in that camp, 
I mean, just go on, right? That's not even, you, you can't even get past walking on water, rising from the dead. I digress, but you get the point. Isaiah is saying here, God is God because he knows the future. He's sovereign. God is in control. He brings things about. No idol, no Baal, no Baal, no Nebo is able to do these things. Isaiah 43, verse 11 to 13. He says, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, who can turn it back? That's a good question. 44 verse seven, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Look at chapter 45, verses five to seven. He says there, and this is just some amazing verses, verse five, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Chapter 48, verse three to five states this. The former things I declared of old they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are an obstinate, excuse me, because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is as iron sinew and your foreheads brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass, I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. <laughs> See, he's saying, I'm telling you what's going to happen before it comes to happen so that you're going to know I'm the one who did it, not your idol that you are worshiping. I told you beforehand, it's kind of like Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, when Jesus was going to the cross three times to the disciples, he told them the son of man is about to be delivered over to sinful men. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised on the third day. And they're, what? And then another time Jesus said it. And then the third time Jesus said it. This is all before he died and rose from the grave. And then what do you think happened after Jesus rose from the grave and the disciples remembered Jesus said he would do that. He told us three times this was going to happen. It's that same kind of phenomena here. God says this is going to happen and it happens so that his people will trust in him. Quite frankly, Isaiah just shows forth God here saying, God is God, he brings things about. He, I'm telling you this is gonna happen so that you will know that God is God. He's the one that does it. God is almighty. He is over all. He has created everything, including you. He is over it. Believe in him, trust in him. And so Isaiah at length 
proves this point. Also, uh, he shows an idol's futility. I could say he kind of just mocks, flat out mocks idols in in these passages multiple times. He just shows how utterly ridiculous it is to trust in idols. Chapter 44 is a classic example of this. Isaiah just sets forth how illogical it is to believe in idols. He maps out the process of how an idol is made, how it's fashioned, how an ironsmith gets tired. He gets tired, he has to take a break because he's making this amazing idol and he gets tired about it. And then he has iron images of how a carpenter cuts down a tree, how he uses part of it for firewood to keep him warm and to cook over and another part to say he's the God who supplies everything to me when he's burning part of it to feed himself. Let me just jump in. Isaiah says, half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and satisfied. He warms himself and says, aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire and the rest of it he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. How crazy is that? Verse 19, no one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked uh, baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? That is to say, His heart is deceived. He can't even say or nor see. There's a lie right here in my right hand. We probably don't physically worship a statue, a block of wood or a piece of metal, although maybe you do, but we definitely know what it is like to be tempted to feel secure because of the things that we have and we give ourselves over to doing whatever it takes to give us the things that we want to have that make us feel secure, whether that's money, whether that's a position, whatever that may be, we know what it is like to have that deluded heart that we have to fight against that seeks to trust in things that are created instead of the one who has created them. To trust in anything other than God is futile. Why would Isaiah go to all this trouble to state all of these things to write about how God is so much greater than idols and how he knows the future, how he's all powerful to bring about his holy will? He is writing all of those things so that we will see God for who God is. So that you will know who God is and what he is like. And that you would see yourself for who you are in comparison to God. And that we would submit to God. That we would place our trust in this God that Isaiah writes about. That we would worship him that we would give our lives to believe him. That we would trust in his promises. That we would believe this truth over and above any other truth that the world says is different than this. Isaiah says this is who God is. Trust in him, believe in him, be amazed by him, give your life over to him. 
The problem with Israel in this time is that they didn't truly see God for who he was. They thought way too highly of themselves. They thought way too lowly of God about what God can do, about what God does do, about his sovereignty over all things, his control over a wicked world. Maybe for you today, you just need to be reminded of the fact that God is who he says he is. God is sovereign. God is good. And you need to rest and trust in that. To be comforted afresh today that God is God. Maybe an anxious soul about what is taking place in the world or in your life. The things that you are facing and you just need to Pause for a moment and consider afresh who God is and that God is at work and that God is in control and that he is over all. Maybe for some of you today, you need this truth to help fuel your obedience to God because you're not viewing God high enough in your mind. You're not ascribing to him the truth and reality of who he is because you're not giving yourself over to following him, to seeking to live in obedience to him. And a glimpse of who God is necessarily will cause us to follow after him in obedience. Because God is worthy of worship because of who he is. We are sinners, we are fallen, we deceive ourselves. We don't believe the right thing. Our, our minds are out of alignment and crooked and we need God to set us straight and to tell us what is right and to tell us what is truth, to tell us how to live, to tell us how to think. If we try to do those things on our own, we will be led astray and we'll make little of God just like they had done here. Maybe some of you here this morning are not trusting in God, not believing in his promises, not giving your life over to obedience to follow after him. Well, the call for you today is to see who you are and to see who God is. Realize that God has created you. He's created everything. His word is faithful and true. His word is trustworthy. No matter what some critical theologian might say about the word of God and the promises of God, no, no matter what some quote unquote theological teacher in some liberal school that doesn't believe or think that God's words are actually true might say about God, you need to say, this word is actually trustworthy. This word is actually true. It is without errors and it talks clearly about who God is and who you are and your need for a savior and your need to trust in God, to believe in God, to confess your sin, to confess that I am a sinner and I have sinned against God and that Jesus Christ has come to save me from my sin. He has come to die on the cross for me and that my sin can be forgiven. Just like we sang with come ye sinners, poor and needy. If you wait till you're better, you're never going to come at all. That's, that's the thing. You got to acknowledge I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. Believe in his promises and listen, he will save you. God is mighty to save. Confess your sin, 
believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on the cross for you, that he rose on the third day, and you will be saved from your sin. Isaiah 43, 11. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no savior. God is the one who has come to us to redeem us, to send Christ to save us. Last thing here this morning uh, is the provision, God's provision of a servant. If you have a study Bible, you can go into that and you can look and it talks about these four amazing servant songs in this passage. Uh, Servant songs that kind of, it talks about a servant that God is going to use it kind of first starts out talking about Israel as a nation that it, we've, we've caught a flavor of some of it in some of the passages we've read. And, and it talks about those things and then it kind of narrows down to a particular servant that is to come. And Isaiah gets real precise in the funnel uh, talking about this servant. In fact, he names it the suffering servant of God that is to come. Some of the greatest passages And verses and all of the Old Testament come to us in Isaiah 52 and 53. These verses speak about this coming suffering servant savior who so clearly would die as a substitutionary death on the cross for us. Just like that pure spotless lamb in the Old Testament that would be sacrificed so that the people's sins could be forgiven, something died so that the sinner could be forgiven, so also this servant, this suffering servant, would be crushed so that the people might go free. As I read some of these verses, just just think about, maybe you just listen or you can follow along, but just Listen and consider what Jesus Christ has done for us and then we'll quickly wrap up. But Isaiah 53, beginning in verse number three, speaking about our Lord and our Savior says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Excuse me. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ has come to do all these things. He has died for us. How beautiful and how accurate, no surprise, that Isaiah speaks about this suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who was to come. Oh, brothers and sisters, trust and believe in Christ. He indeed will set you free. He will forgive. As Isaiah says in chapter 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. May each of us come to Christ, believing in his sacrifice on the cross for our sin. And may each of us be comforted this day to realize that God is sovereign, that God is in control. He is over all. We can rest assured in that. God is with us. He will always see his people through. Like Job, let us say, though he slay me, I will trust in him. He will bring us safely home. He has created us. He has created all. See God for who he is. See yourself for who you are. Believe God. Worship him. Let us live in obedience to him. He is the God of comfort. He is the God of salvation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the sending forth of the suffering servant in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you for the work that you have done. We acknowledge your sovereignty, your control over this world that you have created. Your ways are not our ways. Things in our eyes seem out of control. But Father, you are over all. Help us to rest in you. Help us to have a sure confidence 
and the work that you have done and are doing in this world. May we be faithful. God, have mercy on us. To do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.